Brittany Packett said, an ally shows up when it is convenient, an accomplice shows up when there is a risk. I am Tamara Ross, and this is Ally to Accomplice. Take a risk and join me on a learning journey where we will hear from smart and generous individuals who will help guide us to use our power and privilege to challenge the status quo and create equitably inclusive spaces for all. Once you have seen injustice, you can't unsee it. We are obliged to act. This podcast is being recorded in the Treaty 7 region, the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Stony Nakoda Nation, the Tsutina Nation, and the Métis Nation Region 3. I am grateful as a white settler with privilege that I live, work, and play here, and strive to live in right relations to all those human and non-human who call this place home. I am pleased that we can spend more time with Lisa Funderberg Hoffman, Executive Director of the Artists' Communities Alliance. As a reminder, Lisa is a systems thinker and coalition builder whose work examines equitable engagement. A dynamic facilitator, she works with residencies, foundations, and other nonprofits on effective strategy and improving the efficacy of teams and programs. Since Lisa's arrival at ACA, she has guided the staff and board and membership into committing to anti-racism, anti-oppression training relative to the artist residency field. Here is part two of our interview. Much of your career and life is the work of advocacy. Can you describe what brought you to this work? Was it a moment, an incident, or did it build over time, or were you born with it? I tell people this all the time. I I was shy as a kid. I was the shyest kid. I could not, even as a five-year-old, I remember I wanted to be a a string bean and the Girl Scouts, and you had to wear this green uniform, you got this sash, and once you got a string, you would get these little pens and you like all these Girl Scout activities. But you had one activity that you had to do in front of everybody to make it through the ceremony was that they put this mirror on the ground. You had to look down in the mirror. This is how I remember it. This may not be true at all. <laughs> you had to look down in the mirror and you had to recite something. And I could not even open my mouth. And I think I ran out and I quit. And I told my mother, I didn't want to do that anymore. So I, was, I never became a Girl Scout. As I grew, I have had certain life experiences. And I think that started as early as um, elementary school and middle school. I went to predominantly white Catholic schools from first to ninth grade, which were incredible in terms of my learning and exposure. And it was amazing. But we went through a lot as being the few BIPOC children, Black, Indigenous, and people of color. We, we had to band together and we experienced a lot, experienced a lot of racism. There was a lot of threats, both from students and teachers and administrators. It was rough, but we learned a lot. And, and we learned how to organized even at a really young age, even though we never called it organized, we knew that we were doing things to support each other and to increase our ability to speak up and and speak out. And I think that's just where it was born and bred. And I got to a certain point in my life where I just made it my goal to continue, no matter how hard it was to be brave and to speak up, to be present and let my voice be heard. As my children have gotten older, my advocacy gets greater. As I've traveled through jobs and have worked in toxic and traumatic work environments, I've gotten stronger. As I increase my personal learning, I'm always on a learning journey. I know a lot, uh, but there's so much more I need to learn and understand about the dynamics of race, racism, and how it has shaped my life and identity and the trauma associated with that. So as I learn more, I get stronger in that. And I think that's what it requires for me personally. It's not for everyone, but it is a role that I can play. I'm not afraid to use my voice. I actually 
love talking and facilitating. So it's a way for me to really leverage that platform for something better. As an advocate, what is the most challenging part of the work for you and what is the most rewarding? The, the most challenging part of the work I'm finding in this moment, because it, it, it varies. Mm. It varies for who I'm speaking to, when I'm speaking to someone. And I, and I would expect that. And I'm okay with that. That variability doesn't bother me or upset me. I'm usually guarded for it. But sometimes I form some relationships over the years with people that I have thought that have a certain level of knowledge and a commitment. And, and these are white people to grow and understand the effects of embodied racism and, and, and how it impacts lives and, and, and how they are privileged by it and kind of romanticizing that growth and romanticizing their own evolution and what I feel like I'm witnessing and noticing only to see that sometimes it shows up in really unexpected places and it hurts and it's insidious and it's violent. Everybody wants to declare what they are. I am anti-racist. I am an ally. I'm an accomplice. I'm with you all the way. I will go to bat for you. And then in the quiet of a conversation, you realize that one, that's not a truth, right? Two, you can't make a declaration for yourself. I get to declare it for that day and, and how we're engaging. But three, that that person or individual may not be as far as long as I thought and that the harm and, and the toll and the surprise on my heart, it, it makes it often very heavy uh, and it makes me very sad. And it puts me in a place where I don't like to be because I'm not a cynical person. I am, I always believe that, that we can win and that we can live the aspiration. We can get to where we want to be. I might not live to see it, but I do believe in, in our collective humanity and on those days, it's really, really hard because often it's not the outright, very apparent, very clear racist that we know. It is often these middle of the road, progressive, woke, what we call the complicit racist. So that, that's the hardest part of the work. The most challenging is, is, is being prepared for that, being prepared to respond to that, being prepared to address that. The most rewarding part of the work is when I start to feel and note the inflection in the people that I've worked with, where we start to see some small yet positive changes. It feels great. And it feels even better when it is people not necessarily in the center, but it is, it's those people that are kind of tangential to the work. It could be a young emerging artist. It mm. could be a student that is starting to start their entry point into this world in which we have systematized and professionalized that as they come into their own awakening and their sense of who they are, start to really think differently, use resources differently, uh, bridge differently, create environments in a different way that give me a lot of hope and promise. And, and it, it warms me in such a way. It's like, okay, we're doing good work. Okay. It, it, it can happen. Uh, and it restores a certain amount of faith. It, it makes me feel really good. Do you see change happening? Or maybe you're resigned to the fact that your impact will not really be seen or felt in your lifetime? 
I, I do see change happening. And, and it's not anything like super big that I can point to, but I, I do see a change and I see an inflection. I see the voice and the tenor of the conversation. I, I always talk about the beautiful question. David White, my favorite poet, he says, a beautiful question shapes a beautiful mind. And over the years, especially over the past five years, the questions have sometimes been very simple and in that simplicity, harmful. And what I'm seeing is now the, the questions are changing the way that people are convening around topics and thinking about how they can change themselves. I feel like it's changing. I still want to see a, a little bit more action, but I see more organizing in a, in a more thoughtful and intentional way where people are attending to their impact in, in, a, in a good way. I'm not expecting to see the whole world or a whole field or any, much of anything really change in such a way. But I, I think starting with some of the changes in heart that are really super important, I feel like I'm witnessing that and noticing that a little bit more. So we have some people that are really trying to disrupt the patterns that um, have gotten us here and that have persisted over time. I am resigned that I won't see the change in my lifetime, but I'm okay with that because I, I tell everyone, it took four or 500 years for this to be created. It's going to take just as long, if not longer, to totally abolish it. Uh, but I, I'm really comfortable with being a part of that. And I can chip it away uh, at what is, the, what is the small part I can do. I feel like it, it's my work. It's my life's practice. I feel 100% committed to it. And I'm okay with being patient because... I'm here because a lot of people before me were patient. What would make you say someone is a good ally? I probably would never use the term ally just because I get tripped up on language a lot because we popularize certain words and, and terms for our own advancement. It gives us something to belong to. It's more of a declaration of what you're not versus an honest and truth-telling conversation about what you are and, and what you are, are doing to address what you are and, and the history of that uh, and, and all the implications. It also feels like a dodge in a way, because it's like, I don't have to talk about all this uncomfortable thing because I have declared that I'm this. So what I think about when I'm always just looking for good humans, and I only know that by actions, how people communicate with me, how people own conversation, how people come back when they have done something that may have been violent or harmful and how they reflect on that and want to grow through that and not look for me to parse that out for them. Mm -hmm. That's when I start to see it really working where I see people who are, are really trying to bridge in such a way that they're accountable for their own actions but also still recognize and see me in the space of that. You can't be a person of color, especially here in America, but really let's say in this world where you have not been a witness of a conversation, a declaration, a statement that implicates you in a certain way. And you have to bend your way to adjust to that. You, you have to move to it, but whiteness doesn't have to do that. So when I start to think about a person that I think is doing the good work and that has a commitment, they have some un understanding of that, of, of their accountability, but are still able to see me and those folks that they have typically otherized in the space and recognize them in a different way. I don't turn off my Blackness. Mm -mm. I can't turn off who I am. 
And so for people who recognize and see me in a space, the wholeness of who I am, and think about what is their role in dismantling and abolishing these systems, what is their role in, in, in really getting at white body supremacy, and what is their role of understanding how they are implicated in that actually carried that, not only their privilege, but advanced it in their own actions. That's when I start to see what I think are, are really good people and, and folks that I want to have deeper conversations with about what can we do together. On the ones who realize that by bringing you into the space, they're bringing in different experience, different knowledge, but it's not your role to tick the EDI box and to move that forward. It's actually our role as the white person. Yeah to do that work and to take the risks. A lot of your works are around identifying and breaking down systemic racism. What action could, I'll use the term allies again, take to move themselves to action, to actually take a risk and do something towards dismantling and rebuilding? How do you make that step? You just got to figure it out. You got to kind of get with some other white folks and, and first acknowledge that it is a truth. You have to sit with that discomfort and say, this is a truth. This is a true part of our history. Not the version that makes you comfortable, but the version that makes it the reality mm-hmm. and start thinking about what is the truth telling and the repair process that you can participate in and do some healing. But, you know, that's me one day. And then another day, I tell everyone it's going to be hard to find common ground, no matter what and who we are and how we identify. We are unique individuals. We come with unique histories and stories and backgrounds and influences. I don't speak for every Black person. Every Black person doesn't speak for me. I'm thinking these little short bridges, these smaller conversations, the more intimate ones, talking to people that are different than you, unlike you, that have a different background and a different identity. I think that's where it starts. And I think that's where it's incredibly hopeful. So I I think thinking more, how can you get with people that can help you see and disrupt your own patterns of behavior? And how can you bridge with people that are different than you in a way and an intention but not like too eager, not overzealous in some soft ways and some very short ways to start saying, where are we common? We're different because it's going to be impossible to be everything. If you're some social justice activist, you want a certain list of demands accomplished before we can even have a conversation. That's going to be hard. And then you hear some white people who will say, well, I need to have a certain list of understanding and history and knowledge before I can do And what happens is you have two groups that feel like they're never good enough or we're never ready and we can continue to be polarized. And we can't continue to be polarized. We have to run on parallel tracks. We have to do our education, our learning, our healing, addressing about traumatic past. We have to address that without truth telling. And then we also have to make short bridges to each other because that's where the change is gonna happen. It's only when we all are experiencing joy. It's only when we all have the right to prosper and access to information and fair and just practice and ways are we actually truly living where we want to be. And I, I think that's going to require some talking. It requires some relationship building. It requires some, to borrow from Indigenous practice, some kinship, 
with each other and the land in a way that we're not used to doing it. And, and I'm really excited about thinking about that and remembering to say hello and remembering to say, well, what do you think about that? And, and stepping back if it feels unsafe or the person's not ready, but not giving up. Why do you feel the arts is uniquely poised to show us injustice and move the viewer to address it? I think artists are brave. They do something that I think a lot of us find hard to do every single day, which is put themselves out there, open to response and feedback in a way that it actually could break their soul and their spirit, but they get back and do it again. Their resilience and their uh, tenacity is amazing. So as a model of, of a way of being, I think the artistic process and practice itself really demonstrates something that's beyond resiliency, that's um, a bravery and a courage that I really admire. And I think art is, in all of its forms, it's a language. And it's a language that reaches people in this really beautiful and often subtle way that allows you to stop, pause, reflect, contemplate. And when used well and in the right conditions, it can change your heart. And it has. And if I think about all my favorite writers, all my favorite musicians, all my favorite visual artists, and in the past five to 10 years, the the social practice artists are the artists that have been really engaged in community in a different way. By being in their presence and witnessing what they're doing or the output of what they do has shaped and changed my mind in, in such a way. And I, I think it's the greatest offering to the world. Uh, but again, when it's done well, I, I think it has the power to transform the world. And uh, I think that is what has transformed most of us, even if we can't point to it directly. This one's going to be really hard for you, Lisa. (laughs) Is there an artist, writer, advocate that we may not be aware of that you think we should be? Let me say this. Over the past year, I've had some of the most amazing conversations with artists, makers, and culture bearers that I have ever had in my life. And it's been through Zoom and somehow they've become incredibly intimate. They have shed all of like, they've been vulnerable. I have learned so much. And then when I go back and and I witness their work, it has opened me in a way that I've never thought ever possible. And I'm enriched by that. This sequestering and pandemic has afforded me this opportunity to slow down and witness more of what we center in our work. As an administrator, we center paperwork and budgets and all this other stuff. But in the pandemic, I've had a chance to find hope and strength and love and care and what our artists have given us in their voices and and how that's been communicated. I'm gonna name one, but I'm gonna say also that there might be 500 others that I would put on this list because I have been held and comforted by artists and the work that they do, these advocates in the social justice field that are just doing amazing things. A lot of writers, you always hear me talk about David White. He's a poet, white Irish poet that has held me the entire pandemic. Poetry has opened my mind in a way that I never thought could be open. But the one artist that I would give a little 
special shout out to that has shaped my thinking, and it's based on a conversation I had last week, is Seitu Jones. He's out of Minnesota, the Twin Cities. He's an elder in our community. He's a Black artist. He's an agriculturalist, visual artist, community engager. He's just amazing. I mean, it's just brilliant. But in our last conversation, he held us uh, in such a particular way. And he's by no means an under-acknowledged artist, but it just reminded me of the power of an art of a man who has seen many things and experienced many things and has made a commitment to a life of, of helping and uplifting his community. I asked the question on the call, what can we do? And he said, throughout his career, he's always seen this as, first you share a desk, then you share a paycheck, and then you can give the land back. We were talking about land and what could we do? We must remember that we're on stolen land, but as a black man, and for many of us, black people, we are stolen people on a stolen land. How do you begin to correct? And I really appreciate him saying, share a desk, share a paycheck, give the land back. He moved me in such a way, and not only because his work is so visually beautiful and compelling, that his thinking in terms of building and structuring new ways of doing things is amazing. He has always been a person that has openly and freely shared his wealth and his wisdom. What you talked about, what the last year has afforded you to be able to reconnect with artists away from the grind of administration. Do you think you, you can carry that forward? What I hold from this is in the arc of my career of whether I was working in the environment or working in the arts, working directly with artists, working directly with people who are building and growing and being in solidarity with the movement. It has increased my capacity to love. It has increased my capacity to be more compassionate. It has increased my kindness, my loving kindness for myself. And all of that goes to a collective care statement of how it increases my capacity to serve and work with others. And I only know that it is something that has been in me but I only know that through this work. And that's with the artists, that's with all the residency programs, that's with all the administrators and the hard days and the long days, that's with all the, I feel like I'm not gonna be able to make it days, is that I've learned that that personal increase has increased my capacity to do the work. And the triumph of the story is that it's not it's not the money, it's not the compensation, it's not the building, it's not the place, it's the people. And I've been surrounded by many, many beautiful people from all different identities, walks of life, cultural backgrounds. And uh, I'm really grateful for that. I'm grateful for that every day. And, and I cherish that deeply. Lisa, I really wanna thank you for your constant generosity of wisdom, candor, care and your indomitable spirit. You help us to identify our power and privilege and how we can use it to make things more equitable for all and potentially right some of the so many wrongs that have built up in our time in our society. So I thank you for that.
Thank you. Lisa spoke of how to take the step to action and risk in becoming what she called a good person and that you just got to figure it out. You get with some other white folks and firstly acknowledge that it is a truth. You have to sit with that discomfort and say, this is a truth. This is a true part of our history. Not the version that makes you comfortable, but the version that is reality and start thinking about what is the truth telling and the repair process that you can participate in and do some healing. I will put a link to the artist Lisa mentioned here today in the podcast details for this episode. Merci Marc Maziad pour la musique. Thank you Don Saunders Dahl for the podcast artwork. And thank you for joining me today. In the spirit of reconciliation, I acknowledge as a white settler with privilege that I live, work, and play on both the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Siksikup, Kainai, Pekani, the Tsutina, the Stony Nakoda, Bears Paw, Chiniki, Wesley nations, the Métis Nation Region 3, and all people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta, as well as the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil nations. Continue this important learning journey with me in future Ally to Accomplice podcasts.